Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. One of the tricky things when you're from a marginalized community is dealing with the pressure to perform perfection. As trans people, there's this implicit understanding that our behavior as individuals reflects on trans people as a whole in the eyes of the cis public. And that bad behavior can have ripple effects that shape laws and even violence. So sometimes it is easier for us to pretend that we are perfect people, people who are only ever victims. It's easier to sweep aside the messier, more human parts of ourselves under the rug so that we don't trip on them while we strive for further rights and acceptance in the world. At this point in our series, if you know one thing about me, it's that I love salacious stories, juicy gossip, and scandals. As a writer, and just as a consumer of media in general, I love stories about people behaving badly. There is something so compelling about people making bad choices. It's why I love film noir, stories about desperate people pushed into corners and forced to make bad decisions. Part of me revels in life under the rug of respectability. But Keeping in mind that this is not how everyone feels, I've tried to avoid stories for OFTV that portray trans people in especially negative lights. However, I found a story this week that has driven its hook so deeply into me that I simply cannot pass it by. This is a story about sea captains and unwanted pregnancies, about doomed courtships and questionable accidents, about people who make bad choices and the increasingly big lies they have to tell to hide them. Join us for the story of the man with three names. Billy Ray was a preacher's son And when his daddy would visit he'd come along When they gather around and started talking that's when Billy would take me walking Out to the backyard we go walking Then he look into my eyes Lord knows to my surprise The only one who could ever reach me Was the son of a preacher man The only boy who could ever teach me Was the son of a preacher man Yes he was, he was Yes he was Our tragic and sordid tale begins in 1875. The Fellini family, located in either Livorno or Florence, depending on which account you read, gives birth to their first child, Eugenia. As with many 19th century families, the Fellinis have another 21 children following Eugenia's birth. 
Ten boys and seven girls survive into adulthood, one of them being Eugenia, while five die in infancy, as was common at the time. Seeking better economic opportunities, the Fellaini family move in 1877 to Wellington, New Zealand, where the father makes ends meet as a fisherman and as a carrier on horse and cart. With 17 mouths to feed, Mr. Fellaini must have recognized that he couldn't do it all on his own. But gender roles being what they were in the 1880s and 1890s, his eldest daughter couldn't be expected to find any work. At least, not as a girl. With this problem in mind, Mr. Fellaini began dressing Eugenia as a boy and sending him to work at stables and brickyards. But given how well Eugenia took to the role, quickly adopting the name Eugene, perhaps it wasn't entirely the father's idea. Eugene liked the work, and more so being seen as a man. What Eugene didn't like? His home life. Things were tense at best between him and his father. What happened next is unclear. Here's what we do know. Eugene found work as a cabin boy aboard a ship and left New Zealand and his family behind for good. Eugene's family didn't bother trying to find him. At this point, they were fed up with him. There's also a report from July 20th, 1920 in the Monero Mercury that Eugene married a Martello Fellini in Italy, a story which is implausible given that Eugene had not been back to Italy since the age of two and that his own surname was Fellini. This is one of several lies that seem to have originated from Eugene himself as a way of obscuring or legitimizing aspects of his past. Given that this one is particularly easy to discredit, I think we can rest assured that it isn't the truth. Eugene spent the next several years at sea enjoying the all-male camaraderie aboard ship. Here, he could be free. Presumably, like the other men on the ship, Eugene enjoyed a good drink. Unfortunately for him, the alcohol loosened his lips. One night, he and the ship's captain were drinking and talking late into the evening when he let slip that his grandmother's pet name for him as a child was Picolina, meaning little girl, rather than Picolino, meaning little boy. And yes, I do understand that I'm pronouncing that wrong, so please don't leave me a comment about it. The captain apparently caught the mistake, and Eugene tried in vain to explain it away. But it was too late. Soon, the whole ship seemed to know that Eugene had been assigned female at birth. The captain rapes Eugene multiple times, resulting in a pregnancy. The crew then abandoned the pregnant Eugene in 1898 at Newcastle, Australia. Friendless, as the 19th century euphemism for fallen women labeled him, Eugene went to Sydney, where he gave birth to Josephine Crawford Fellini. Eugene gave his daughter to an Italian woman only identified as a Mrs. DeAngelis in Double Bay. Josephine would grow up calling Mrs. DeAngelis granny and seeing her father only intermittently. In the later trial, Josephine gave this account of her childhood, quote, I first remember my mother when about seven years of age. 
She always wore men's clothing and was known as Harry Crawford. I was brought up at Double Bay by Mrs. DeAngelis, whom I used to call Granny. Granny told me that Harry Crawford was my mother and that my father was the captain of a boat. My mother was very cruel to me when I was a child and often forgot me. Granny told me that my mother tried to smother me when I was a baby. Mrs. DeAngelis died when I was about 12 years old, and my mother took me to a little confectionery shop in Balmain kept by a Mrs. Burkett, who had a son named Harry. Struggling with the trauma of forced outing, multiple rapes, and an unwanted pregnancy, Eugene clearly made some very bad choices. He must have felt so conflicted about his daughter, a painful reminder not only of rape, but also of his assigned sex. It's no surprise that he tried to have as little contact with her as he could manage. Eugene worked in various jobs, including a rubber plant, before taking a job for a Dr. G.R.C. Clark in Warunga, North Sydney, in 1912. By this time, Eugene was living under the name Harry Leo Crawford and claimed to be Scottish rather than Italian. He'd become quite a handsome, rakish man by this point, around age 32, and the female staff of Dr. Clark made frequent passes at him. But Eugene only had eyes for one, a housekeeper named Annie Burkett, thought to be quite a looker, although she was a widow with a 13-year-old son of her own. It's a little debatable what Burkett thought of Eugene. Some say that she was quite taken with him, especially in light of his complete lack of interest in the other women around him. However, her son would later say that she only took up with him after his unrelenting insistence. Either way, the two of them became close. The following year, Burkett took her savings and moved to Balmain, where she opened a confectionery shop. Not long after, Eugene followed her there and began courting her in earnest. On February 19, 1913, Eugene, under the guise of the Scott Harry Leo Crawford, married Annie Burkett at the Methodist Parsonage in Balmain. For the next few years, according to Eugene, the two enjoyed a peaceful marriage. Burkett's son challenged this, however, saying that the two were in constant arguments and gloom. Eugene's daughter backed up this account, telling the courts, quote, My mother told me Mrs. Burkett had some money and always thought my mother was a man. I said to my mother, She'll find you out one of these days. My mother replied, Oh, I'll watch it. I would rather do away with myself than let the police find anything about me. My mother told me always to call her father and not let Mrs. Burkett nor anyone else know that she was a woman. I did not know that my mother was married to Mrs. Burkett, but they occupied the same bedroom. They quarreled a great deal, and my mother used to come out and say, More rows over you. I cannot get any sleep. I replied to my mother and she said, oh, a lovely daughter I've got. I said, what can you expect? A lovely mother I've got. By all accounts, though, Annie did not know about Eugene being trans. He kept this secret from her for fear of being turned into the police. Unfortunately, this couldn't last forever. Sometime in 1917, a neighbor cottoned on to Eugene's assigned sex and informed Burkett. 
What happened next is the big question. Where did Annie go? At the time, Eugene told several people that Annie had absconded with another man, leaving poor Eugene high and dry and mysteriously abandoning her own teenage son and her business. In mid-October 1917, a body was discovered in the brush off Mowbray Road, Chatswood. The initial report by a Dr. Palmer stated that the body was much charred, No definite marks of violence were found, and the stomach contained much food. There was no smell of alcohol, and the organs of the body were in a healthy condition. Death had occurred, probably due to burns. The body was not identified at first, as one witness described seeing a strange woman enter the bush around that area. They came to the somewhat absurd conclusion that the strange woman had poured kerosene all over herself and set herself on fire in an act of suicide, either purposeful or accidental. The body was buried in a coffin marked the body of an unknown woman in Rookwood Cemetery. The first to question what had happened, naturally, was Burkett's son, Eugene claimed, as I said before, that she'd run off with another man. Eugene rented a room where he told the owner of the house, a Henrietta Sheblick, that we had a jolly good row and I gave her a crack on the head and she cleared. Another witness later described how the illiterate Eugene had asked them to read the papers for any mention of a murder around the time of Burkett's disappearance. Eugene took up two years later with a Lizzie King Allison. In 1919, he married the woman, several years his senior, and moved in with her. The two of them appear to have had a happy marriage. Burkett's son, however, was understandably stewing about his mother's disappearance. In 1920, he visited an aunt and evidently raised enough questions with her that he ended up being brought to the police station to make a statement. In addition to the mysterious circumstances surrounding Burkett's disappearance, the son claimed that Eugene had acted strangely towards him in the days immediately following. Eugene took the boy, who claimed they'd never gone along, to a place called The Gap, an ocean cliff in Sydney with a long reputation as a suicide spot, where he tried to get the boy to come close to the edge. Sensing that something was up, The boy refused, and eventually they left. Then Eugene took the boy to another location where, seemingly for no reason, Eugene had the boy dig a large hole. After the inexplicable hole was dug, Eugene had taken the boy home. The police felt this was strong enough evidence to arrest Eugene at a hotel in Annandale on July 5th, 1920. When they arrested him, Eugene refused to take off his clothing, leading them to bring in a doctor who discovered Eugene's assigned sex. At his own request, apparently, Eugene was placed in the women's holding cell. He also requested that the police not out him to his wife, Lizzie, who still did not know that he was trans, let alone involved in a murder plot. The detective later related this exchange in court. Quote, Fellaini said, 
You will find it. Something there that I have been using. Detective. What is it? Something artificial? Fellini replied. Yes. Don't let her see it. Detective. Do you mean to say that she doesn't know anything about this? Fellini said his first wife had not known about it either. Not until the latter part of our marriage. The article, as newspapers referred to it at the time, turned out to be a dildo made of wood and rubber, found in a bag in Lizzie's house in Stanmore. It was later exhibited during the trial. The newspapers picked up the sensational story immediately. The day following his arrest, the barrier miner ran an article on his arraignment with this vivid description of Eugene, quote, The accused woman is strangely interesting. She bore an extraordinary resemblance to a man, for facially she is masculine. She wore a man's clothes. While in the docks, she appeared distinctly nervous. She wears a gold band ring on the little finger, and she fiddled with the dock rail. In her right hand, she carried a gray felt hat. Her hair is almost black and clipped short. It was neatly brushed and parted on the left side of her head. Her face is remarkably small, especially around the mouth. Her face is considerably wrinkled and suggests that she is older than her stated 43. Her clothing consisted of a well-worn dark gray cloth sack suit, white tennis shirt, and a neatly tied green Broadway tie. Her well-polished boots were of patent leather. Eugene gave a statement to the police. According to his account, on October 1st, 1917, he and Annie went on a picnic near Lane Cove River at Annie's request. There, she confronted him with the knowledge of his trans status and told him that she was going to leave him. The two got into a heated argument and at some point she tripped and fell backwards, hitting her head on a rock. Eugene rushed to her, but, he claimed, it was too late. She was dead. Then Eugene panicked. However you looked at it, it didn't look good for him. If they arrested him, his assigned sex would be revealed. So he decided that the best thing to do would be to burn the body, hoping that the fire would make it unidentifiable. Whether Burkett had revealed that she knew of Eugene's birth sex before this fateful picnic is questionable. Eugene's daughter told the court, quote, In 1917, I met my mother, who told me everything was unsettled and upside down, as Mrs. Burkett had discovered she was a woman. My mother seemed very agitated and was always reticent about herself. The trial was a bit of a fiasco, attracting large crowds. Mr. Gale, the magistrate, was taken to task in the newspapers for reserving seats in the audience for popular actors. Eugene was at first allowed to present as a man during his October 20th murder trial, but soon this was changed to his being made to wear female attire. The press labeled it the man-woman case and ran an endless array of articles about it. During the trial, the Crown tried to avoid bringing up the phallus and Eugene's apparently active sex life, claiming that there were women in the room and it wasn't proper for them to hear about such things. Chief Justice Sir William Cullen responded by saying that, quote, 
If women came to a criminal court, they must not be considered for a moment. He made the Crown describe in detail how Eugene had supposedly deceived his two wives for years by use of the dildo. Much of the evidence was circumstantial, and Eugene maintained his innocence. However, Dr. Palmer, who had examined the body, claimed that the blistering on the skin proved that Burkett had been alive when the fire was started. And while he initially claimed that there was no other evidence of violence, the body was exhumed and x-rays showed that there were fractures to the skull, possibly consistent with Eugene's story of the accidental fall, but these were explained away as possibly being the result of the fire. Eugene was found guilty and sentenced to death. Eugene told the Chief Justice, I have been three months in Long Bay Goal. I am near to a nervous breakdown. I am not guilty, Your Honor. I know nothing whatsoever of this charge. It is only through false evidence that I have been convicted. Through his lawyer, Eugene immediately filed an appeal of the conviction that read in part, quote, that the jury's verdict was against evidence, that the evidence tendered by the Crown was weak and merely circumstantial, that the case against the accused set up by the Crown was destroyed by the evidence of the Crown's medical witnesses, that the identification of the appellant was some person alleged by the Crown to have been seen in the neighborhood of the place where a charred body was found was unsatisfactory, and that owing to nervous prostration at the trial, the appellant was physically unable to make a statement of facts which would have answered the circumstantial evidence, unquote. This case was dismissed. However, he was able to get his sentence commuted to life imprisonment. Eugene continued to be talked about in the press and gained the attention of prison reform workers who tried for several years to have his conviction thrown out until finally, in February 1931, they were able to get the Minister for Justice to sit down with Eugene. The two spoke for an hour, and on the basis of Eugene's age and poor health, he was released from Long Bay Prison. The newspapers were surprisingly sympathetic, mentioning how there was still no confirmation that the body was Burkitt's, and that there was a lack of evidence to suggest Eugene had killed her intentionally. They also floated a few entirely made-up theories, such as poisoning. Eugene disappeared from public life. The next time he was mentioned was in a 1935 speech by one of the police officers who'd arrested him. Inspector Stuart Robson said, I was also responsible for the arrest of Eugenia Fellini, the famous man-woman. She was the child of an Italian skipper and he dressed her in male clothes and she worked as a cabin boy. She kept to male attire, and her exploits are well known. She was convicted of the murder of her wife and was sentenced to life imprisonment. I arrested her when she was working as a man, breaking down rum in a Sydney hotel cellar. That was three years after the murder. I thought I had arrested a man, and it was not until she declined to undress that I thought there was something wrong. A doctor made the discovery. She was subsequently released and has completely disappeared. On June 9th, 1938, 
a person presumed to be a woman attempted to cross the road and was struck by a car. They were taken to the Sydney hospital, but died of their injuries the next day. Using fingerprints, the person was identified as Eugene, who had been living under the assumed name and identity of Mrs. Jean Ford and working as the proprietor of a boarding house in Paddington. He'd apparently just sold the business for 100 pounds. His obituary, under his final assumed name, appears in the Sunday Morning Herald on June 11, 1938. It reads simply, quote, Ford, the funeral of the late Jean Ford of 27 Glenmore Road, Paddington, will leave our private mortuary chapel, 268 Elizabeth Street, Sydney, this Saturday at 2 p.m. for the Church of England Cemetery, Rookwood. Eugene Fellini, a man with three names, lived a life constrained by society in a time before the availability of modern trans identities. In order to avoid arrest, he was forced to spin a web of lies around himself, lies which, if exposed, could have meant the end of him. In order to protect himself, he made desperate choices. And one of those desperate choices led to the death, possibly even the murder, of his first wife. All of this, perhaps, could have been avoided if trans life had not been criminalized. listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com OFTV. Donors who give $5 or more per month have access to special mini bonus episodes of OFTV each month. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. What a wicked thing to say You never felt this way What a wicked thing to do To make me dream of you And I want to fall in love No, I
Oh, but 